0: There's quite a simple thing I was thinking about when I was writing this month's episode. I kept coming back to the buildings themselves. Every week, people pile into these buildings with a singular goal. To worship their god. To prove their devotion. To venerate their religion. Churches, temples, chapels. The locations themselves where worship and rituals take place with regularity have always fascinated me. It seems to me that a place with that kind of energy would be a lens for the psychic or the supernatural, a prism that could break the light of this world into a rainbow of the otherworldly. This month, on Death, Dying, and Other Things, two stories set in holy places. In the first, The Chapel on the Hill, a man visits with an old friend on a trip home. In the second, Sanctuary, a stranger comes to a church looking for Sanctuary from a storm. Death and dying are the threshold between this world and the next. The boundary between light and dark. The barrier between worlds, and that's where we're going. We are going into the shadows to bring you stories of horror and heartbreak. From the Phantom Podcast Network, this is Death, Dying, and Other Things. I'm Justin Buskey. Stay with us. Seems like it's always been up there, up on Maple Hill just outside of town. A small chapel on a tall hill. Small and white, the masonry's cracked and crumbling, the cross on the roof is bent, nearly falling. The fence around the place is standing only in places. The kids around town must make a game of knocking it down. Strangely, the windows are all intact. Guess the kids didn't want to piss off God too much. Like I said, it seems like it's always been there. It's certainly been there my whole life. And it's never been used as long as I can remember. Long as my sister can remember. Long as our parents can remember too. People used to tell stories about the place. It's haunted. It's cursed. That's why nobody uses it anymore. That's why it's never been demolished. Better to contain the spirits or the curse or the wrath of God or whatever than tear the place down and risk unleashing hell. The town I'm from is less than 1,000 people. That, like the chapel, has always been true as long as I can remember. It's never gotten bigger like so many small towns do, and it's never gotten smaller like so many villages in the Midwest of this country have. I left as soon as I could at 18. I tried college, but I wasn't any good at it. I tried office life too, but I wasn't any good at that either. I had a knack for knife work, though. And so now I work as a sous chef at the type of place you take a date if you really want to make an impression. The type of place I'd never eat at myself unless the meals were comped. But what can you do? The chapel is visible from every corner of town due to its position up on Maple Hill. It's a fixture of the town, same as Fred's gasoline or the Willow Diner, a part of the town's fabric, the chapel on the hill. Last summer, I went to visit my parents. My sister was flying out too with her husband and her daughter, so it was the perfect time for a sort of family reunion. My sister, her husband, and the little girl arrived the day before I did, and were already settled into the house when my dad picked me up at the airport the next day. I brought a little explorer's kit with a spade and bucket for my niece so she could dig up my parents' backyard like I used to. We had lunch on the patio and got into the beer shortly after. By the time I was done with my third beer and it was time for dinner, my niece had already dug a hole a foot and a half deep back near the tree line. So big she could almost fit inside, and when my sister saw her, she told me I was responsible for helping her wash up for dinner. That first night, back in my old room for the first time in years, was not comforting. I thought about the bouts of insomnia that plagued me as a kid. I thought about all the difficulty I used to have at school. The trouble I had fitting in with the kids in the neighborhood. All problems my sister never had. I looked out the window of my room and there it was, the chapel up on Maple Hill, almost glowing from the moonlight. My window was the only window in the house that could see it, and on those nights I couldn't sleep, I'd sit up in my bed and stare at it for as long as I was awake. That night, older but still not able to sleep in this room, was no different. I watched the moon-bathed chapel some two miles away from where I was, and the hours passed. The next morning, my mom sent me to the store for eggs—the one thing she forgot to stock up on, but the one thing all of us could agree we wanted to have for breakfast. The store was in the city, a half-hour drive. My little town never got a proper grocery, and even though you could buy most of your dry goods at Fred's Gasoline—eggs, milk, produce, stuff like that—we had to drive for. Dad asked if I wanted him to come with, but I thought it would be nice to go for a drive alone through the streets I had learned on. Mom gave me her keys and told me to fill it up if I was out. I got turned around, which seems impossible in this town. There are maybe ten streets total here. But I did, and ended up at the bottom of the road that leads up Maple Hill and to the chapel on the top of it. Someone had constructed a barrier and even put a sign up. Chapel not in use, stay out. I wonder why they'd have to do that. At Fred's Gasoline, I ran into an old classmate someone I hadn't seen since I left to try college. His name was Greg, and we played on the football team together. He was happy to see me, and I was happy to see him, and while I filled up my mom's car, we made small talk. He told me he had started a family, and I told him I was in town visiting mine. And when we had both wrapped up filling our gas tanks, he surprised me by asking me over for a drink that night. Yeah, he said, you can meet our son. I'm sure Trish would like to see you too. Trish, I asked. Patricia Lowes. Well, it's Patricia Reynolds since we got married, but he trailed off, seeing the memory flicker across my face. No shit, I said. Greg and Trish, as she'd started to go by, were very hospitable hosts. Their house was lovely, which I told them repeatedly, and their son, Greg Jr., was the second funniest little kid I'd ever met besides my niece. Trish put the little guy to bed around eight, and Greg started making cocktails. We were three deep when he brought up the crowd we used to run around with in our early adolescence, and had downed another when he brought up the night at Maple Hill, the night at the chapel. "'You remember that night?' he asked, laughing. "'Course I do,' I said, hoping that that would end the conversation there. "'What happened?' Trish pressed. She had either never heard the story, or wanted a good laugh, and I bet it was the latter.' No, you really don't have to tell that story, I said. Oh, come on. It's a funny story, Greg said. Yeah, I want to hear it, Trish said. And I fell silent while Greg lunged into it. For my part, that night was an embarrassment. It was later than a group of four 12-year-old boys should be out. I want to say that it was nearing 10, but that might be my adult mind filling the story in to make it more dramatic. We were on our way home, back to the part of town we all lived in, riding our bicycles down the dark highway. We were just passing the turn toward Maple Hill when Greg stopped and yelled out to get our attention. "'You guys want to do something fun?' he shouted. "'Let's go up there!' He pointed towards the top of the hill, toward the chapel. Our other two friends readily agreed, but I was rooted to the spot. Not just with the fear of the chapel, but with the fear of reprisals if we were caught out this late, trespassing. When I didn't move, they goaded me on. Come on, chicken, what's the matter? And when they realized they couldn't goad me into it, they left me to watch the bikes and then disappeared up the dark hillside, shouting chicken and b'gawk down at me from their hidden perch above. Soon after, their voices trailed off and I was left alone in the dark of night with four bikes and no company until they returned. Trish didn't laugh at the story. Neither did Greg. From Greg's tone, I could tell he knew it was a mistake to tell it. Sorry, he said, as he grabbed all of our glasses and made another round of drinks. I stood, swaying on the front porch, and hugged Greg. He hugged back when I told him it was nice to see him, and thanked him for having me over. Next time I'm in town, I said, we should do it again. Of course, man. I stumbled out across the yard to the street. The moon was out and low in the sky, peeking over the trees on the forest surrounding the town. Greg shouted after me. Hey man, we didn't even go all the way up there. I turned to face him. What? We didn't go all the way up to the chapel. We were just as scared as you were, man. We just hung out like halfway up the hill for a while. I looked at him unsure whether he was telling the truth or just trying to make me feel better. Night, he said. Have a safe walk. Yeah. Good night. My walk home would take me down the main highway that ran through town to my parents' side of town, then down two streets to their home. An easy walk, less than half a mile. The type of walk I make all the time in my neighborhood after an evening drinking. I didn't have to walk past that mysterious chapel in my neighborhood, did I? I stood at the bottom of the turnoff up the hill for a long while, stared at the keep-out sign, peered up the hill, looked over at the moon shining bright silvery light across Maple Hill, beckoning me up. I thought about the conversation with Greg, about how I was too scared to go up there, too scared to do anything, while all of them went up the hill and left me down there in this exact spot all those years ago. I could prove them wrong right now. I took the first step up that tall hill and felt invigorated. A shiver of energy surged through my body. I felt a clarity, a sobriety, that this was important for me to do now, tonight. Not to prove to anyone else, but to prove to myself. The way up the hill was further than it looked. It took me twenty minutes to climb, and with each step the road seemed to stretch out behind me. Soon, the cars passing on the highway below were single slashes of light across the dark night. I became winded halfway up there. Strange, because I hike once a week, much more strenuous hikes than this. Maybe it was the booze, but more likely it was because of the change in quality of air around me. It wasn't getting thinner, as you would expect from the increasing elevation, but getting thicker, it was sticking in my throat like too much maple syrup poured over your morning pancakes. I had to pause twice on the way up in order to swallow the air building up around my tongue. It took a moment, at the top of the hill, to admire the view. The town below was barely a speck of light in an ocean of dark, and the road I had just ascended now descended down what I could rightly describe as a cliff face. I was starting to sober up very slightly because of the physical activity I had just undertaken, but I needed a break, and so I took a seat on a small bench near the front of the chapel. I listened to the wind and caught my breath. If the air was thick outside, it was thicker in the chapel, thick with dust that got caught in my throat and made me cough, that covered my shoulders like snow in the winter that got caught in my eyelashes and hung in front of my eyes. It was a battle with the dust from the moment I stepped inside, a losing one, and one I gave up within a few minutes. Examining my environment, I noticed two things immediately besides the dust in the air. One, of the pews, of which there were six in all, five were broken, cleaved in half by either time or vandals. The only one that was still intact was the one at the front of the chapel, nearest the podium, also cleaved in half, and the cross on the wall, barely hanging onto its station. Two, there was a great deal of graffiti on the walls, as one would expect simple tags to entire murals, but amazingly, none near the cross, which you'd assume would be the first target. Around the edges of the room were all manner of bags backpacks, shopping bags, you name it, filled with cans of spray paint and, in some cases, school books. It was even harder to breathe in here, so I sat on the undamaged pew at the front of the place to catch my breath. My head was heavy. The drinks were pulling me down into the abyss. I tried to straighten my head up, but my chin was drawn to my chest like a magnet. Suddenly from the back of the chapel, some cans or bottles clattered across the floor. My head spun around involuntarily, sending my tenuous equilibrium spinning. I felt like I might throw up. I held myself together and stood to get a better look toward the noise, but all I could see was a dark corner—an animal maybe, a rat or a squirrel or a raccoon—searching through the trash for hidden treasures. I wouldn't be here long enough to worry about that, so I sat back down on the pew, tried to focus my thoughts on my situation, maybe meditate on what being here in this chapel now meant to me. I passed out instead. It was still night when I woke head throbbing, throat burning with thirst. I stood and almost lost my footing, stumbling forward and tripping on some of the refuse on the floor of the chapel. I closed my eyes, felt myself swaying, and tried to gauge how drunk I still was and how hungover I was likely to become. The answer to both of those questions was very, and it was about time I got back home. I trudged through the chapel, of years of forgotten artifacts from countless visitors, and nearly fell through the front door. The wind was howling now and biting cold. It stripped the heat from my body immediately, and as I made my way across the small lawn to the road back down the hill, my heart sank. The town below was now just a pinprick, a single star in a great black ocean. The road stretched on and on in front of me, disappearing into the darkness who knows how far down the side of the hill. The highway, if it was there anymore, wasn't visible, and neither were the cars driving on it. I looked up towards the now starless sky, nothing visible in any direction, void, and nothing but the hill I was on and the town that was miles below me. I wrapped my arms around my body, shivering, and ducked back inside the chapel. I checked my phone, but had no signal. The sun didn't come up where I expected it to. Or when I expected it to. Or at all. The interior of the chapel had become as cold as it was outside, and so I gathered some of the refuse up and built a small fire in the corner of the room near the front door that I left cracked to whisk out some of the smoke from the building. The drunkenness had passed, but now it felt like my head was splitting open. I sat against the wall and closed my eyes. Feeling the warm radiance of the fire lick my cheek calmed my head slightly. And somehow, I fell back asleep. I woke up ravenously hungry, but no longer hungover. I slid up the wall, standing, and rubbed the sleep out of my eyes. My fire was still crackling but dying, and so I threw a few more pieces of splintered wood into it, and it roared back to life. The temperature was still dropping outside, but I could no longer see even the pale light of the town below through the darkness. Maple Hill, it seemed, was growing, pushing the chapel up into the sky, and me with it. Or maybe it was the chapel itself ascending, pulling the hill with it. Whatever or however was happening, I didn't have time to contemplate out here. The furious wind was stripping my body heat down to the bone, and I had to find something to eat. Slipping back through the chapel door and returning to my fire, my eyes were drawn to something alarming that I hadn't noticed when I woke up. I was looking at what appeared to me through the dim light of my small fire, the back of someone's head in the frontmost pew. The head was bowed in what appeared to be a prayer. I realized I was holding my breath, probably to avoid being noticed by this new visitor to the chapel. I started to breathe again slowly and took a few steps forward, sneaking around the edge of the room trying to get a look at my new partner here in this place. I accidentally kicked a pile of spray paint cans. They scattered across the floor and clattered against the wall. The new visitor's head spun around searching for the source of the noise. His face. His face was my face. He stood up. I stood up, swaying on the spot. He, I, looked right through me, searched the wall behind me, stared down at the piles of trash around me. Then, he, I, turned back around and laid down on the pew to sleep. Just a reminder that the best way to help us out here at Death, Dying, and Other Things is to rate and subscribe us wherever you listen. iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. It was just past sundown when the stranger walked in, soaked from the rain, and found, quickly and quietly, a seat in a pew toward the back. Michael Shannon, deep in prayer toward the front of the church, didn't let this sudden intrusion draw him out of his private conversation. When he had said his amen and rose from his knees to return to his seat on the pew, he turned his whole body to face the immense church and see who had come in through such foul weather and found the stranger with her head bowed as well. The church was massive. Michael often thought that if the whole town had converted overnight, that massive sanctuary would have no problem accommodating them all on Sunday's Mass. From the altar to the foyer, all told, the church, this church, the one he belonged to and volunteered for and prayed at most nights, was probably the biggest building in town. Michael watched the stranger pray. He didn't know why, but the peace she wore on her face while she kneeled there with her eyes closed kept him interested. Interested for too long. And when the stranger was done praying and she had opened her eyes, they made eye contact for a split second. Until Michael spun his whole body back toward the altar, embarrassed. Lightning cracked across the sky outside, illuminating the windows, and thunder echoed off the high ceilings, startling Michael and punctuating this uncomfortable moment. He hoped that the stranger would leave soon, now that her prayer was done, and he wouldn't have to face her again. Instead, a few minutes later, the stranger sat down at the end of the pew Michael currently occupied. She trained her eyes straight ahead, but turned her head toward Michael just enough that her smirk was obvious. He didn't recognize her. She wasn't from this town. He was pretty sure of that, now that he got a good look at her. I'm just passing through, she said, but I needed a place to pray, and to get out of the rain for a little bit. It's really coming down out there, and I was having a hell of a time driving, pardon my language. I hope I didn't disturb you. Her wet hair clumped into big strands, hanging on either side of her face. Michael thought that she was pretty, and he liked her strong voice. No, you didn't, Michael said. When I'm speaking to the Lord, I don't let much distract me. If you had shouted my name to get my attention, maybe, but but I don't know your name, she said. How could I have shouted it? I just mean that may be one of the only ways to rouse me when I'm praying. That's all I mean. She smiled at him, and Michael thought that maybe she found his stammering endearing. What's your name? She asked. Michael. Yours? Michaela. Huh. Imagine that. ''That's strange,'' Michael said. ''Yeah. What a coincidence,'' the stranger, Michaela, said. They sat in silence a while longer. Michael stared forward to the front of the church and examined the ornate patterns of the altar. Snaking shapes intertwined in knots that tied and untied themselves across the veneer. Intricate moldings carved from wood ran along the steps of the sanctuary. He followed one pattern around the top step, rising and falling across the length of the sanctuary until the stair and the molding turned out of sight. Michael thought about all the times he had the honor of climbing those few steps to deliver the holy text or some holy implement. He thought about the private conversations he had with the priests while preparing for Mass with them. He thought about all of this, but he was still keenly aware of the glances Michaela threw his way. He looked at her at just the right moment to catch her in the act, but instead of acting embarrassed, as he had, she smiled and asked him another question. So do you live around here? He didn't answer, and Michaela shifted gears immediately. Oh, I'm sorry, she said. Were you looking for some privacy? I promise, I'm just waiting for the storm to settle and then I'll be out of your hair. Michael felt a tinge of regret at making her feel uncomfortable. No, 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 he said. It's not that at all. Yeah, I live right down the street from here. What's that like?" she said. I mean, what's it like to live in such a small town? How many people live here anyway? I don't think there's ever been an official count, Michael said. If there has, I've not been interested enough to look it up. Michaela laughed, expecting that this was a joke, but Michael didn't crack a smile. Instead, he stared back at Michaela, brows furrowed, forehead etched with worry. He assumed, based on Michaela's laugh, that he had said something to embarrass himself. He blurted out a quick, excuse me, and hurried off toward the back of the church to an office that volunteers sometimes used. Michael took a few deep breaths in the small closet, and beat himself up mentally for whatever he had done to shame himself in front of his visitor. He had started calling Michaela his visitor in his head since their conversations. He called her that because he felt responsible for her time here, in this church, and he wanted to make it enjoyable. He parted the door slightly, to see what she was up to in his absence, and because she was looking back at the door Michael had disappeared behind several moments earlier, they made eye contact again. Michael forcefully shut the door as a result of the surprise he felt. His heart took off again, beating against the inside of his chest with renewed force. Michaela was walking through a side pew when Michael emerged from the small closet space. She smiled as he approached, and Michael smiled back, having been able to calm his nerves with some of the breathing exercises he had been practicing. When he stopped several feet from her, she made sure to close the distance. This surprised Michael, but she smelled nice, and so he didn't back away, but rather remained close enough to enjoy the scent. Thunder rolled into the high ceilings and rattled the lamps hanging from the walls. It's really coming down out there, huh? Michaela said. Yeah, I guess it is. I don't think you can leave yet, Michael said. Well, that's too bad. I guess I'll just have to hang out here alone, she said. No, no, he said. I'll keep you company. Oh, I thought you were leaving, she said. No, he said. What kind of representative of this church and this town would I be if I left you here, lonely and scared? Well, I never said I was scared, she said. You're right. I'm sorry. I just assumed because of the thunder and lightning. Are you scared? she asked. No, no, of course not, he said, though his breathing was ragged. Are you sure? she asked. I'm sure. They sat toward the back of the church for a while and played cards, which Michael happened to be carrying. Michael was incredibly interested in where Michaela was from, a moderately sized city toward the coast. Michael told a few more jokes, and a few of them even made Michaela laugh. He thought she was even prettier when she laughed. That's when he made his decision. Would you like to see a secret? he asked. What kind of secret? Michaela asked in response. It's a secret only a few people know about, the priests of this church, a few important people in the town, and me," Michael said. It's been a secret here, in this town, for many years. You might say it's the reason this church, and maybe even this town, exist. Michaela's interest was certainly piqued by this. Okay, show me. Follow me, Michael said standing up and walking toward the back of the church past the sanctuary past the altar and through a small door that led into the sacristy whoa i don't think we should be going in there Michaela said as she came to a stop just on the other side of the door no no it's fine the priests here know me and have given me the honor of being worthy Michael said really once i show this to you it will be worth it Michaela stepped into the small room and Michael closed the door behind her Okay, he said, moving to the far end of the room, past the cabinets full of priestly garments. Watch here. He pointed to a particular cabinet on the far wall, and then returned to Michaela's side of the room, where he placed his hand on a wall tile and pushed it back into a recess. This unlatched something on the backside of the cabinet Michael had told her to watch, and the entire thing swung forward, revealing an archway secured by a wrought iron gate. Simultaneous to the cabinet swinging forward, something else happened behind Michaela. A click, or a clack. And when Michaela, made entirely uneasy by the sight of the stone archway, spun around to open the door and leave the church, bad weather or no, she found the door to the sacristy locked. She spun her head around and asked, what are you doing? I told you, Michael responded, I want to show you something, don't you still want to see it? No, to be honest. I'd like to leave, she said. I'm afraid that's not possible anymore, he said. And besides, once you see what you'll see, I don't think you'll want to. Michaela looked around the room, searching for anything to defend herself with, and lunged for the first thing she saw that could possibly be used as a weapon, a thurible used for burning incense on the end of a long chain. She thought she'd use it as some improvised flail, But Michael also lunged forward, pulling something from the depths of his coat and holding it out toward Michaela's neck. A knife, and Michaela nearly thrust her neck right into the blade. She didn't reach for the thurible, and Michael now had the upper hand. Calm down, calm down, he said. I will not hurt you, I promise. Michaela didn't move, just stared wide-eyed at the ten-inch blade now mere breaths away from her throat. Michael could see her discomfort and withdrew the knife, returning it to its hiding place deep in his coat. Okay, now you see there's no escape, and you see that I am armed. Will you come quietly now? Michael asked. It really will make all of this much easier. Michaela straightened, standing up straight and puffing her chest out in an act of defiance. She took several long, measured breaths, pursed her lips, and hissed out three words. Lead the way. Michael didn't waste any time. As soon as Michaela had agreed to be no more trouble, he had bounded over to the stone archway and wrought iron gate and had swung the gate open. He turned expectantly, and when Michaela showed even the slightest hesitation, Michael plunged his hand back into his coat and flashed his blade, which was enough for Michaela. She scraped across the floor, eyes fixed on Michael, waiting for any sudden moves. None came, and when Michael put his hand on her shoulder and guided her the final feet through the stone archway, he shut the metal gate behind them and pulled a foot-long switch recessed into the stone wall. The floor beneath them lurched, and then they began descending. The small elevator was almost just a cage suspended by a large chain. The walls were made of iron bars, and Michael watched the cobblestone that made up this simple elevator shaft pass, pebble by pebble. Michaela, for her part, was barely breathing. Her nerves were on fire, her heart pounded in her ears, her face flushed with panic. Where were they going? She didn't have to wait long for her answer. Soon, the elevator shaft terminated, opening up into a great underground chasm. Mostly a natural cave formation, the walls and ceiling of the cavity were worked over centuries by erosion, most likely from whatever water source had filled the great underground lake below them. The lake sat, glassy and dark as the void, waiting for their elevator trip to end. At certain places along the rough ceiling of the cavern hung huge iron chandeliers, casting a pale, unnatural blue light around the cave. There were exactly four man-made objects in that underground cave besides the chandeliers. The elevator Michael and Michaela were descending in. An island on the far end of the lake, which may have been a natural formation at one point, but was now ornately carved into some sort of decorative platform. A wooden rafter pier, which the elevator now stopped at, and a wooden boat tied to that pier. As the elevator came to rest on the rickety wooden dock, Michael swung the iron bars open and looked at Michaela. She gulped and remembered the knife Michael carried and stepped out of the elevator and onto the pier. Every small movement she made sent ripples emanating from the pier across the calm lake, and when Michael jumped out after her, the ripples grew. The surface of the lake, no longer calm and smooth, was further disturbed by far-off splashes neither Michael nor Michaela could see. It seemed the limited light of this place would only allow their eyes to take in the most general of features in the great chasm. Michael loaded them both into the boat, pushed off, and started paddling toward the only other surface in that massive room. Michaela looked down, over the side of the boat. From here, she could see white objects, flit along deep in the water, like some sort of pale fish that hadn't seen the sun in generations. The trip across the lake took almost 10 minutes, and when they reached the other platform, the dim light focused, and Michaela was able to take in more fully the scene. While Michael tied the boat to a post, she craned her neck. The circular platform was mostly smooth, except around the edges where some script was carved that Michaela couldn't read. In the center of the platform was a set of chains and shackles, and Michaela suddenly understood what Michael was going to do. Almost on cue with this realization, high in the chamber, a deep red light switched on, drawing her eyes upward. It was a bright, electrical light, unlike the sick light of the chandeliers, and it illuminated a high balcony and behind it a room. On the balcony stood three hooded and robed figures, but at this distance, that is all she could make of them. Michael was pulling the rope tight when Michaela saw her opening. She jumped on Michael's back and shoved her hand into the front of his coat. He tried to fight her off of him, but she struggled to stay latched on. Her hand found what it was looking for, and with a slight turn and a little pressure, Michaela plunged Michael's own knife into his chest. He sputtered for breath, but couldn't take in any air. And when the knife hit his heart, he fell forward onto the stone platform, dead. Michaela went down with him, smashing her forehead into the smooth stone, she saw a flash of light, then stars in searing pain. Her eyes rolled. She laid on her side, face against the smooth stone, and tried to catch her breath. That's when the rumble started. Low at first, Michaela thought it was an earthquake. She'd been through her share of those where she was from. But the rumbling didn't stop. Instead, it grew. Moment by moment it compounded, shook the rock she was on, vibrated the massive lake until the entire surface was quivering. Something massive, something alive, broke the surface of the water in front of Michaela. It quivered and shook. The water from the lake peeled off the great beast like curtains revealing an ancient secret. She blinked trying to clear the fog from her mind, trying to bring the colossus into focus. The creature stopped moving. A few last drops of water rolled off the thing and into the lake. Michaela pushed herself up and off the cold stone and to her knees. In front of her, a sea of eyes rolled out of countless eyelids and fixed themselves on her. This episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things was produced and edited by me, Justin Buskey. The stories, both A Chapel on a Hill and Sanctuary, were written by me too. You can follow me on Twitter, at Justin JustinBuskey. Intro and outro music is by the prolific Eric Warnke. Check him out on SoundCloud. Special thanks to Hills and to Caves. Death, Dying, and Other Things is a member of the Phantom Podcast Network. Be sure to check out all the other great shows new episodes the first Thursday of every month. This has been Death, Dying, and Other Things, and I've been your host, Justin Buskey. Stay out of the shadows. Hello, I'm Insane Mike, the host of Attack of the Killer Podcast. And I'm here to tell you about our show. Attack of the Killer Podcast is about a group of friends who openly discuss horror movies. It is a very fun show, and we discuss various horror topics. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you may even learn a thing or two. Here's what the critics are saying about... Attack of the Killer Podcast. Brutal, evil, ghastly beyond belief. So check out our show at attackofthekillerpodcast.com or stitcher.com or even at the Phantom Podcast Network at downrightcreepy.com You can also follow us on Facebook at Attack of the Killer Podcast and on Twitter at AOTKP. Thank you.